Welcome to NPR News Presents. I'm Mike Moen, and this hour we open the spring season of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, and we go off to the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 37 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for our upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Susie Hansen is an American journalist and editor. She was born and raised in New Jersey and is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. In 2007, she moved to Istanbul after receiving a two-year journalism fellowship from the Institute of Current World Affairs to write on Turkish politics and foreign affairs. She has been in Turkey ever since. And over the past 10 years, she has traveled to Libya, Greece, Egypt, Afghanistan, India, and beyond to study and reflect on socio-political issues. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, the London Review of Books, Bloomberg, Vogue, and Business Week, and other publications. Her first book, and the topic of today's forum, Notes on a Foreign Country, Notes on a Foreign Country, an American Abroad in a Post-American World, is a blend of memoir, journalism, and history, and reflects her evolving understanding of America's place in the world. Just yesterday, it was announced that her book won the Overseas Press Club of America's annual award for Best Nonfiction Book on International Affairs. Congratulations, Susie. Ms. Hansen will provide a fresh perspective on the United States and the perceptions of American power around the world in a time of national and global turmoil. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum the award-winning writer, Susie Hansen. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here in Minneapolis. I have, I have never been, but it looks beautiful. I've been here for about seven or so, 10, 15 hours. First, I would like to thank the wonderful Westminster Forum uh, for having me, inviting me to speak here, as well as Minnesota Public Radio for, for broadcasting the program. And I would like to thank this beautiful church for having me and to all of you for coming. So thank you so much. I apologize in advance if I'm a little wobbly today because I, I only recently just got in from Istanbul uh, last night. Um, the East Coast storm really messed things up, um, but I think you guys are used to the East Coast messing up a lot of things, so. <laughs> You're used to it. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, I think, I think we'll be okay. So today I'm, I'm going to talk about being an American abroad in a post-American world, which is the, the subtitle of my book, and I've noticed 
when, when I meet, have met people in the last eight months, they've said, well, what does post-American world mean anyway? Is that even true? And I've had to explain that subtitles are conceived in the marketing departments of publishing houses. So take them, take them with a grain of salt. But um, in all seriousness, what did, what did I mean by that? And I think uh, it means several things, but we can, we can talk about three of them. One, it very technically means, I think, that if you speak to military experts, policymakers, politicians, uh, various foreign policy experts these days, they will talk about a multipolar world. They have accepted that this has happened. We, we no longer live in a bipolar world. Obviously, the Cold War has ended. We no longer live in a unipolar world in which the United States is the most powerful. We now have um, this kind of mess that, that where there's a bunch of powers angling for dominance in various regions. And I think that's often why the world feels as scary as it does these days. Um, so I think that it is actually in some ways a technical term. But I think that also uh, post-American calls attention to this kind of trend that, that started happening maybe, you know, it was probably after the financial crisis, maybe a few years ago, we all noticed people started talking about American decline and the sort of end of the American empire. And people were saying that in the media. I don't, I'm not saying that, I, that it's true or not. But it, it is this kind of feeling that some combination of September 11th, the failures of the Iraq war and the financial crisis indeed contributed to this kind of waning of, of influence of the United States. But I think for me, there's, a, there's an emotional, on an emotional level, post-American world meant something else, which was that when I first moved to Turkey in 2007, I, it felt like a post-American world. It was six years after September 11th. The, the war in Iraq had been a catastrophe and something had shifted. You, you could feel it and I could feel it. And it didn't feel the same to me as maybe it had in the 1990s when I traveled in Europe for the first time when I was in college. I felt ill at ease. I felt as if I could do something wrong, like if I, I could break something. And I felt very conscious of being American at all times. And uh, it, this new feeling did seem very, very specific to Americans, not necessarily to Europeans or just Westerners. So let's go back and talk about how I ended up in Turkey. Um, I, I ended up in this, I, I, was, I was given this fellowship by this organization, the Institute of Current World Affairs. I say I ended up because it was really quite a last minute decision um, to apply. I had been living in New York, I was 29 years old, I had a life there, I was an editor at a newspaper. And um, I, I was actually, even though I'd had this kind of established life, I was pretty unhappy, I was confused about a lot of things. And the reason why is, again, September 11th, in New York, it was a very interesting time afterwards because, of course, it was such a tragedy and everybody was kind of trying to grapple with what had happened. What, who were these people, you know, um, and what had happened in the last 25 years in the U.S.? And people were reading about Islam for the first time and the Taliban and, and Afghanistan and, and what happened in Afghanistan. And it felt like this new engagement that felt really special, actually. Um, and then it faded. Paradoxically, I think when the Iraq war kind of really started to, to go downhill, I think it faded. I think that had to do with New York in particular because it was the financial boom and everybody was just kind of going out to eat all the time. But, um, but I think that... <laughs> but I think... Um, but I think that, that to a certain degree something was lost in that, in that period. And I still felt confused. And I think for me in particular, you know, I grew up in a small town in the Jersey Shore. And so for people from the Jersey Shore, you expect to learn everything from New York. You know, you expect to find all the answers in New York. And I wasn't finding them anymore. Because in fact, 
even though I was surrounded by these very smart people in journalism, you know, all of us, none of us really had a very good sense of foreign affairs. None of us had a really good sense of history. We didn't really have a good sense of, of, of what had happened in the 20th century. And I think that particularly has to do with my generation. I'm now 40. So I was in college in the 90s. The people who came of age uh, after we had supposedly won the Cold War, I think in particular felt it was this sort of end of history time. And I think that they, they, it was sort of as if, oh, the American system is triumphant, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we were perhaps even more ignorant. I mean, I would say definitely more ignorant than people who had lived through the 60s and 70s. So I think this might have been a little bit particular to us. Um, but in any case, I felt like I was going to need to get out of America in order to, to get a grasp on these things. And I chose Turkey um, for a very strange reason. Uh, my favorite writer was James Baldwin. And he, I had watched this documentary about him in which he had said that uh, the 10 years on and off that he spent in Istanbul had been um, very wonderful for him in the sense that he felt more comfortable there as a black gay man than he had in Paris or New York in the 40s and 50s. And to me, you know, sitting in New York in my 20s, this was very surprising. It didn't make any sense. Because somewhere in my mind, Paris and New York, even in the 40s and 50s, were still Paris and New York. And Istanbul was something, a place that would have been behind them, that wouldn't have been as progressive as, 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 they, as those places would be. And of course, I, was, I didn't understand what it felt like to be James Baldwin because I'm a white woman, so I had no idea what I was talking about. But in any case, one of these moments, these are these kinds of moments that I think happen once in a while in your life where everything kind of opens up, you know, because you understand how little you know. And that was what made me want to kind of, you know, explore uh, the rest of the world in some way. I wanted to follow Baldwin. And so I chose Turkey for these almost non-Turkish reasons. It was this very romantic reason. I thought, well, maybe I will understand something too. Maybe Istanbul is this special place where the secrets of the world are revealed. And so I moved, I moved to Turkey. And I loved it. I, I, I was instantly, you know, just in a kind of state of euphoria. And I think, you know, why? I mean, it's a very, very special, intimate place. People are very connected to each other's lives. In a weird way, it was like being in this global city in the middle of everything, but you were in this small town. Um, people really kind of take care of each other. They also are very into each other's business, and that can be quite annoying. But to me, it was, it was intimate and, and lovely, and I, I, I loved it. And, and for about the first six months, I loved it until I crashed. And the reason why was that as a journalist, I was having a hard time understanding Turkey. Um, as an American, I was having a hard time understanding Turkey. I realized that if I was really going to see, okay, what is, what is the political history of this place? What is, what is the, the, the culture? Um, I needed to understand many more things, including and maybe especially the country's history with the United States. When I arrived there, I did not know that Turkey had had this very long, very complicated history with the US. Now, I knew the Marshall Plan, I knew the Truman Doctrine, but I didn't understand the complexity of it. And it kept coming up. And what I started thinking was that, well, you know, in particular, I should say, in the, in the 1960s, um, there was a huge anti-American movement in Turkey, and there were a number of military coups that the Turks very much believed the Americans had a hand in. And these were serious scars on the political history of the country, and, and mental scars as well, and many people had ended up in jail. And I realized that, you know, 
if I was going to try to understand this country, I first had to understand its relationship with my country, because that relationship had actually produced my ideas about it, it had produced my worldview. I probably had unconscious ideas about the country of Turkey that I wasn't even aware of, because we're not taught this history. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't in some way mean as much to us as it means to the people who are on the receiving end. Um, and I was finding that I would be in conversations with Turks and they would assume that I knew all of these details. And I didn't. Of course I didn't. Um, and this happened again and again and again. And it's interesting that Baldwin, if we can come back to him, had written that white and black Americans had this same problem, that they were engaged in this intimate relationship, this intimate embrace, um, but the white people in the relationship didn't know the black people in the relationship as well, and in a way that inhibits your ability to love, because if you don't know someone, you can't, and you don't know the relationship you are having with them, you can't love them. And I began to see or think that perhaps this was the same problem that the United States had had with a lot of foreigners for the last 60 years. And by that I mean post-1945, uh, 70 years. Um, and in fact, when Baldwin was there, and this is what I ended up discovering when I was doing research, um, he was watching this new American, what he called an empire, extend itself around the rest of the world for the first time, because it was the 60s, so it was kind of new. There was this flood of American aid, there were a lot of American soldiers on Turkish soil, and, and Turks were just starting to kind of react to it. And he was terrified, Baldwin was terrified. He said, well, wait a minute, we haven't solved our own problems at home. We haven't solved our race problem. We haven't solved you know, this very intense problem of violence. How are we going to, ex what, who are we to spread our values to the rest of the world? What is this going to mean? And he really was watching it with trepidation. And, you know, I, I began to see that maybe there was this, this, this same thing happening now where Americans still were not very conscious of, of, of this relationship. And it happened again and again as I, even as I left Turkey. So, for example, one of the most transformative uh, experiences I had was when I went to Greece. And um, I was there to cover the financial crisis in 2010. And uh, at the time, I don't know if you remember in the beginning when about Greece in particular, people were really quite nasty about it. It was sort of, oh, these lazy, crazy Greeks, what have they done? They've messed up their country. And that was the attitude, and it was the attitude from the part of the magazines. I don't think I was quite that obnoxious, so I, don't, I hope that I did not have that attitude. But I think I remember the, the sort of the, the tone of the journalism and maybe the sort of tone of the assignment being kind of like, go figure out what, what they did to themselves, even though, of course, the financial crisis started with us. So, um, but this, they're not connected uh, in our minds. So, so I went, and I had never been sent, I'd never been to Greece. Like many journalists who arrived, we, I knew nothing about it. I was reading a lot of books, but I was talking to all different types of people, you know, Communist Party members, academics, young people, novelists. And I would start this conversation with this kind of way that, that journalists talk, um, that I think I was trying to impersonate because I was still a new journalist. You know, what happened here? It's this kind of way of being like a tough journalist. You know, you're sort of saying, you know, what have you guys done and, and, and what happened here? And eventually the Greeks, would say, you know, well, if you really want to talk about what happened here, we're going to have to go back to 1947 and 1949, and we're going to have to talk about the Greek Civil War. We're going to have to talk about the, um, the American intervention. And they were like, you know, you know, kind of this very sort of 
Um, they were assuming that I knew what they were talking about. I had no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, once again, I'm sitting there kind of with this feeling of, I mean, I mean really quite honestly, shame that here I come as a journalist from the United States of America writing for an American magazine. And I did not know about this shared history that we had that was obviously so important because all of these people were able to trace for me how those decades led to the current crisis that they were experiencing then. And you know what, what happens in that moment is that I realize a number of things too, which is that, I mean, look at that, look at that journalist asking that question. This is a power relationship. And I come from the country that had the power and that relationship has also produced the way that I think about the world, the way I think about the United States, and the way that I think about foreign countries. And as someone not conscious of those things at the time, I think that I was being very, very irresponsible. And I began to engage in this kind of quest to understand all of these you know, moments in history and some of these, these deeper um, relationships. And I went to Egypt and I went to Iran and I went to Afghanistan where I experienced my first American occupation. And you know, I don't want to suggest that everybody was obsessed with the US because they're not. You know, it's not this kind of thing of where they are constantly talking about it. Um, it's actually the fact that it comes up so naturally and so, you know, they kind of take it for granted. It's just sort of, oh yes, well of course, and then the Americans did this. But it's not like that for us. I mean, we don't obviously have that same feeling about Greece. Oh, well then obviously we did this with Greece, or then we, we, we never really think this way. Um, one of the examples that I often give is when I, I met this Iraqi man and, and you know, we were just sort of meeting for coffee, and, and I said, you know, what, he grew up in Iraq in the 80s and 90s, and I said, well, what, what was it like there then? Um, and he just paused and kind of looked at me, and I said, what, did I say something wrong? And he said, well, it's just, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, you know, everybody asks me this question, but it's just amazing to me. You had so much to do with what became of our lives and you don't know really anything about us. And it was this kind of really awful <laughs> moment where you realize the disconnect that we have, even though we have been so connected. So what was I discovering over and over again? That you know, we have these myths about ourselves. Um, th these are myths about um, our engagement with the rest of the world as a kind of, uh, these act of benevolent intentions. That we're a kind of special nation you know, at the end of the evolutionary spectrum that everybody else is trying to catch up with and that we are kind of sharing our values, values with them and that they are you know, that kind of aspiring to be like the United States was something that a lot of people were um, happily engaged with. And one of the things that I did was that I was kind of examining the kind of Cold War myth-making in the, in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and it was very interesting to me because, in fact, one of the primary countries that our Cold War intellectuals and politicians were focusing on was Turkey. And what they were thinking about was that, okay, World War II had ended. Uh, the Europeans were, in sh you know, they were shattered. They could no longer kind of, they were losing their colonial outposts and then their colonial holdings and they could no longer control these places. And the third world, so-called third world, although that phrase came later, was, was up for grabs. And, and the United States, these, in, these kind of Cold War intellectuals who the, the government very, the US government very consciously con convened in Boston, they came from Harvard, they came from MIT. They said, okay, how are we gonna do this? You know, how are we going to conceive of ourselves as the inheritors of, of, of you know, world power, essentially? 
And what they said was, okay, we know that colonialism doesn't work. Okay, this is out of fashion. It's racist. We don't do that. We're Americans. Um, I mean, this is kind of how they talked about it. And they said, but we're going to have to help these countries. So we have to kind of lead them. And this is where they conceived of this as a kind of modernization. And the phrase that they used was modernization. And this is where a lot of the language that we even use to this day about foreign countries um, was born. You know, this kind of like, people have to catch up with us. Are they left behind? Are they really modern? Modern was defined as very, very specific things. Um, cities were supposed to, the countries were supposed to become more urbanized. A modern person was not supposed to be late. Um, you know, all of these things, I mean, it, this is, was very much, and um, the, the idea was that we were going to help these places because the Americans were different from the Brits. The Brits didn't think anyone could be like them. But <laughs> um, the, the, the Americans th kind of thought everybody could be helped along to be like them. Um, but because of this has a kind of, you know, a, a nicer tinge to it, it um, but it's still kind of obviously the same thing in a lot of ways. And the primary countries that where we were trying to um, install essentially a way of life and an economic system were Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, you know, a lot of these countries. And unfortunately, what they even did think of at the time was that the only people who could manage such a vast transformation would be military di dictators. Um, and this was something that was seen at the time as okay. And I think that what's interesting about that is that even if you know that history very well from the 60s and 70s, I think that we still tend to tell ourselves um, that it wasn't intentional uh, and that it was all to good ends. And maybe that's true. I mean, you'll find that even foreign historians from the 50s and 60s will say, I think the Americans meant well. <laughs> There's something very interesting about this idea of Americans as, as fundamentally good. And it's something that's so important to us as well. But I think unfortunately that sometimes means that we don't face who we really are, face our, our actions in a, in a clear, in a clear way. Um, all of this is, of course, the language of American exceptionalism, and um, this is something that has been given to us. It is a kind of propaganda like anything else, but I have to say that I believed it was the truth. There's something, very, it was very interesting to me living in Turkey. It's a very nationalistic country. They have a lot of myths, and I would look at this nationalism and I would say, oh God, you know, um, this is just terrible, uh, and I didn't realize that we had exactly the same thing, because Back then, when I moved to Turkey in 2007, we didn't call it nationalism, ever. We've only call, started calling it nationalism because of Trump. Thank you, Trump. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, we thought of it as a kind of patriotism, and I think we do think of it as a kind of truth, that there is a kind of superiority to this country. And since I've brought him up... Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I do think that it's very interesting. I, I, I'm watching this all t from afar to some degree, but I do think that sometimes the, 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 the phenomenon of Trump has been reduced to a kind of domestic conversation. But I see very much, I think to a lot of the rest of the world, he is the distillation of a lot of our worst traits. He's not surprising. Um, and uh, I think that it's possible that the election of, of, of Trump was also about this kind of fear of loss of power in the world. 
Um, that's, that's what it looks like to me, anyway. Um, but, it, you know, what I, the way that I try to understand all of these things was by reading foreign writers, and, and it's something that I really believe in, foreign novelists, foreign poets, foreign historians, foreign journalists. And um, one of the most profound of them was this Pakistani novelist, Kamila Shamsi. And she said that you know, most of the world knew or was aware of the fact that there were two Americas and they lived in, in keeping these two ideas in their head. There was the America at home that had a lot of things they really admired about it and many of them wanted to even live there because it was freer than where they were coming from. But there was the other America, there was the second America, which was the America abroad. And that was the one that they were always being forced to reckon with. But she asked this question of why don't Americans see the second one in quite the same way? Why don't they have kind of the ability to see the rest of the world's kind of subjective experience? Um, and she, she asked this really interesting question that I, I always think about, which is, she said, if you notice, none of the greatest novelists, greatest American novelists, very few of them, I think Don DeLillo is an exception, um, can include the rest of the world in their great American novels. I mean, if they don't think of the U.S. as an empire as such, and I think we, you can debate that word in, until the end of the day, but they don't think of it, they don't conceive of America as a place that has extended itself throughout the rest of the world. And she asked why. She said, you were so much a part of my life in the 1980s in Pakistan. Um, I'm just surprised that you don't include us. And again, I think that you know, when we think about the way the rest of the world sees us and is so brushed aside as anti-Americanism, it's not. It's, this kind of, it's conceived as a kind of hatred, and it's just a, it's a confusion. I think it's kind of a broken heart, to be honest, and it's something that, um, that I wish that we all kind of tried to understand more deeply, but I think that what it comes down to is, is it you know, that Americans um, have been in denial of the fact that they are an empire? Is the that the fundamental problem? Or is it that there's something the way that we think about ourselves, the way we conceive of ourselves, that just disavows a certain kind of responsibility for our country's actions? And I'm not sure I have all the answers to that yet, but I look forward to talking with you about it. And, and thank you very much. And you're listening to NPR News Presents. Thank you, Susie Hansen. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is journalist Susie Hansen, author of the book, Notes on a Foreign Country, an American Abroad in a Post-American World. While the ushers collect questions here in the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost, whose popular annual event, MinRoast, takes place on Friday, April 27. We invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, April 10 at noon, when pediatrician Dr. Nadine Burke Harris will speak on the topic Healing the Effects of Childhood Adversity and Trauma. Our events are always free and open to all, and further information can be found online at westminsterforum.org. And now, Susie Hansen, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. 
First question takes off kind of where you ended, that is uh, the question of American exceptionalism. How is uh, the, the newest uh, uh, version of that called America First, which we see in immigration policies and tariff policies, how is that playing in a place like Turkey? Um, I think that first of all, it, I think this is really important that uh, people don't understand what our foreign policy is. Um, <laughs> in Turkey. I mean, I don't, there's a vast, vast confusion about what exactly is going on, who's controlling things, um, and, and what Trump actually does believe. And I think that that's, that's understandable. I think in a country like Turkey, we have to keep in mind that the, there is a war going on in northern Syria, in Afrin, um, that is very much this unbelievably complicated war where the Americans are both on the Turkish side and on the Kurdish side. The Turks are fighting the Kurds. Everybody's kind of fighting each other, but also on their side. And, and so, um, you know, the, Ameri the, the Turks right now are, are uh, mo the majority of them are quite upset with the U.S. And there's a, anti, this kind of anti-Americanism, so-called, has risen a bit in the country. Um, but I think that, you know, what I have seen is that, as I said, Turks knew America very well and new Americans very well and so people who traveled to America a lot are not as surprised by they didn't think of America as, a, as a, an exceptional country or very very different because they knew all the complexity of it they admired certain things that I find what's interesting is that the people who never went to America you know maybe you know the, the guy who works at my deli or my Pilates instructor um, who may not know the, the country as well, they express things in this interesting way. Like, it's unbelievable that, that, that you elected this man as president, or it's, I, I had no idea that America was so racist, you had a black president. And, and you know, there's sort of a maze, like, wow, in America this can happen? Like, this can happen in America? And so you realize that they did conceive of America in this special way, that it did exist for them. Um, but I... I don't know if they ever believed so strongly in, in a kind of American exceptionalism. Yeah. One of the views of Turkey in America is that this is a moderate Muslim country. It's, it's one of the nations we should uh, get close to because of that. Is, is that your perception of, of Turkey and is, is it Turkey's own self-perception in your view as a moderate Muslim country? I was just reading the other day, I, you know, I, I think it's, this depends on how we define moderate, um, you know, the percentage of people in a country like Turkey who, who want Sharia versus another country would be very, very low. The, 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 the tradition of secularism and the identity of being a secular country is very important to Turks. And um, also, even though it is a predominantly Muslim country, their Turkish identity in some ways is just is, is more important to them. So I think that this has changed a little bit with Erdogan, but it's it's not changed so much. I think you hear in the media sometimes, oh, it's becoming more conservative. And of course that would happen if you have a conservative party in power. But I don't think that they made these kind of grand scale, scale efforts, in the beginning at least, to impose a kind of stricter version of Islam on the country. I would say, yes, it is moderate. I mean, Erdogan flip-flops back and forth on a lot of things, depending on what's going on. But just the other day, he's gotten a lot of press for this. He was talking about how you know we have to realize that the Quran and what was said in the Quran is, does not pertain to contemporary life, and you know, and all of that. So I mean, that is that is a, a liberal thinker. Um, it's not something you would maybe normally say about him, but um, but so no, I, but I think that deeply has to do with the tradition of a kind of. But when we say moderate Islam in Turkey, this is very specific to the fact that the state has always controlled it. 
The state controls the mosques. The state controls the sermons. The state controls the way it's talked about in schools. So that's very different from a lot of other countries. When the coup attempt happened, uh, uh, was it two years ago in, in Turkey? Yeah. Uh, in the U.S., we began learning about this, uh, the, the sort of mastermind, as at least he was described, behind that coup attempt, uh, Fethullah Gulen, who is a, an Islamic cleric living in Pennsylvania. We know very little about him. Can you describe him and his movement and, and what impact that's having in Turkey today? I mean, it's really one of the most astonishing stories, I think, that are, is coming out of Turkey right now. And it's just so hard to understand and believe that I think people shy away from it. But Fethullah Gulen is an Islamic cleric in the 1960s. He founded this, you know, uh, he was from a Sufi brotherhood. And those were not, they weren't, it wasn't that free for those kinds of brotherhoods to exist openly in Turkey at the time. This is when it was very strictly kind of, more strictly Ataturk's version of Turkey. And so these brotherhoods were forced to go underground to some degree. And he um, founded his movement, the Gulen movement. Um, it, he also, at the same time, had opened or had founded some anti-communist uh, um, the Turkish word, anti-communist organizations, which is why now today a lot of people um, think of the movement as having ties to the United States. Because what America was doing in Turkey at the time was very much trying to, to keep out the Soviet influence. So um, this movement, though, had to, they did things in a very interesting way. They knew that they couldn't be outright kind of, you know, espousing their religious views. So they founded schools. They founded secular schools. And they started these schools all throughout the country. And eventually, as the decades went on, they also spread these schools throughout the world, starting in Central Asia, where we had some Turkic um, countries and after the fall of the Soviet Union, and then to Africa, and then to Asia, they were, I mean, they were proselytizing essentially, and then to the US, and they were very, they've had quite a large influence here in the US. Um, but these secular schools did not have religion in the schools, and they were very good schools. So people um, wanted to send their kids to them, but at the same time, they were opening publishing houses and holding companies and newspapers and, you know, everything else. And they were also very much. Um, it, it, as starting with the 1980s, they had a lot of political contacts and they were starting to enter into the state. And now what people, and by the time Erdogan came to power, they had kind of joined forces even though they hated each other. Um, they, Erdogan is from a different, uh, it's Muslim, kind of, he has a different Islamic background, let's put it that way. And this movement was seen, he didn't really totally like it, but they had things that that each other needed and they came together for political convenience. And a lot of that rhetoric that you heard in to the 2000s, in 2007, about Turkey as the Muslim model, this was very much generated by, you know, to some degree about this movement that had a view of, of what Turkey could be. And the movement also espoused um, peace. I mean, it was really trying to sort of say to the West, you have gone through September 11th, you are essentially afraid of, of Muslim groups, we are the moderate ones. We are the ones who can kind of help you, in, in a sense. And it was, they were just incredibly powerful. But as is assumed now, and this is all alleged, uh, they were trying, they started having a falling out with, with Erdogan, and this culminated with them trying to um, bring down his government with the military coup. And how would they have gotten hold of the military, the Turkish military, which had always tried to keep out religious people? The idea is that they had infiltrated it 
by pretending to not be religious. And this is where people start not believing this, this whole story, I think. But, um, and then the, the military coup failed uh, because they didn't have, even though they had institutional support and they had, uh, and the movement was very strong, they didn't have popular support. Not like Erdogan. Erdogan has a different level of popular support. So that's, that's what happened. And Fethullah Gulen lives in Pennsylvania. So this is why Turkey is quite angry at the US right now for not extraditing him. I mean, they see him you know, as a terrorist, essentially. I mean, this is the language they're using. And in retaliation, they have jailed, uh, in retaliation for the coup, they have jailed, fired, you know, just exile. I mean, people have had to leave the country. It's been awful, about 100,000 people. And that has included leftists and Kurds who were also um, in opposition to the government. So it's been, it's really been quite awful and heartbreaking to watch. Because obviously even if some of the movement is responsible for it, not all of these people can be responsible for a military coup and it's... Tell us a, a bit about what it's like to be a woman, a foreign woman in Istanbul these days. Is it, uh, are, do you feel at risk or uh, are you concerned about your safety? It's such an interesting thing because I think um, some of my friends criticize that I don't write about this that much in my book, and I think that when you move abroad, you're having such a weird um, splitting experience in a way that certain parts of your identity as, uh, assert themselves more than others. And I just saw, I was just American. I mean, I just, that was for some reason the thing I was thinking about all the time, and I wasn't experiencing as uh, living in a Muslim country as a woman in the way that I think that a lot of people would expect. I had, you know, I found it Let's see, I found it no different really than, than living in a lot of big cities. I mean, I think that there's a different level of conservatism, obviously. I, I, I did find myself, I would dress a little bit more conservatively, but of course people wear miniskirts in Turkey, but I, I wouldn't because I just felt, I, I didn't want to draw attention to myself in that way. I mean, I think, again though, it's unclear if people are interacting with me as a woman or as a foreigner, but do I feel strange there as a woman? No. Do I feel unsafe? No, and I mean, I think that, um, I think this is the implication by the question a lot, of, a lot of the time. But I think that, you know, what's interesting about that is, uh, and I wrote about this in an article once, for, that, that I felt so safe in Turkey. I actually feel so safe in Istanbul. It's a country of very low crime, and it's a country, and it's a city. I don't know if anyone is a fan of Jane Jacobs, but the death and life of American cities, and she defined what makes a great city. Istanbul would be her favorite city because, Cities that work are ones where people are engaged in the street, right? They face, the shopkeepers all watch the street and everybody is kind of engaged with each other in these kind of relationships of reciprocity. And, you know, you know if something happens to you in Istanbul, someone, you know, there's someone watching. So you, you do have this feeling of safety, but as I said, it can also be quite... Um, you know, inv invasive. <laughs> I think for Turkish women, it's a, lot, it's a lot worse than for me. Let's get at the question of uh, the, the education of American young people with regard to the world beyond America. Uh, in, one, in your books, you, you note that the uh, uh, teaching of international geography has fallen off in many American schools. There's a college in Wisconsin that's doing away with history as a major. What? Uh, yeah. Not in Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, from our students in the audience, there's a question about how, what do we need to do in American education to, to get at the question of uh, understanding ourselves in, in the broader global context in a more healthy way? Gosh, it's such a good question, but and such a hard one, because I mean, I think I would have to go back and look at, 
I think that a lot of it is, I mean, let's, let's think of it as a lot of it is an attitude, right? I mean, first of all, it's an attitude of that the, the, it's important to know these things. I mean, I think that people in Turkey, for example, have to know about, they have seven countries bordering them. They're in the midst of this very volatile region. Their history has involved, you know, Europeans and all, Americans and everything else. So has, ours has involved a lot of people also. But I think that they, they feel it's almost a necessity or they're constantly hearing about those places all the time. Um, and they want to know, they're curious about it. I think that our attitude to some degree for a long time has just been people come to us, you know, we don't have the same obligation to learn about those places. Um, but I think that first and foremost, it would start with the teaching of the 20th century. I mean, as I mentioned in my book, as far as I remember, um, I learned it through 20th century history in high school through the lyrics to We Didn't Start the Fire. Um, you want to sing that for us? Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't. I can't sing. You hear my voice, um, <laughs> but um, so so. I mean, I think that now. I think that we would look at. Let's say, okay, look, we're confused about what's going on in America right now. I think all of us are a bit confused. I think it's become more crucial that we focus on what happened post-1945 and who were we engaged with and who are those countries and who lives there and um, what languages did they speak and what do we need to know about this history that is, that is honest. Um, I would say that that's probably the most important thing. It's about updating the history, but I will just tell you one thing. I taught some American journalism students who'd come to Turkey for a kind of a, like little program. And I was very surprised to hear that this 20-year-old woman said she no one in any of her schools had taught her about September 11th. Yeah, I mean, I, but when you think about it, what class would that have come up in? I mean, I, I, I don't know, but it's very interesting to me. And so that scared me a little bit. Uh, as you uh, know, in this country, we've, we've opened some serious conversation about racial justice for the first time in a long time, and just getting started. The, the notion of white privilege is talked about a lot today. To what extent can you link white privilege with power privilege in terms of America's engagement with the broader world? Do you think there's a connection there? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the presence of James Baldwin in my book is, is, is for a very um, strong reason, not only because of that he was the reason I moved to Turkey, but I believe there is a direct link um, between our, our racial history and our foreign policy. There's, um, it's something that, you know, this is a relationship that, that, I think that if you think about, okay, the decision to invade a country, um, and a lot of these countries have been um, Middle Eastern or Arab, for example, um, the assumption that that is, I think it's not talked about enough that that, a white country feels like they have the right to do that because they are doing it to a brown country. And I think that these are the kinds of honest conversations that we're not having enough of. Um, I found over and over again that when I was writing the book, that I, because I really wanted it to be a universal book about all Americans, and I, I didn't want it to be a book about Susie Hansen, I wanted it to be about all of us. And it was hard to do because my background's different from your background and all that. But I did find that every, so often when I was writing about my own privilege, because I cop to a lot of things, um, very embarrassing things. I had to say, white, this was something white people do, this is something white people, I mean, I think it is a very, very, very specific syndrome, but the problem is, is that we don't think of ourselves necessarily, I think, in white, white in that way. Um, I think that we tend to more look at 
the fact that, well, we might be, I mean, because even liberals suffer from the same syndrome, um, but I think that we tend to think that, you know, maybe we don't have those kind of tendencies that the British had or the French had, but of course we do, they're just not um, as acknowledged. You mentioned James Baldwin several times. Would he be happy in today's Istanbul? Well, um, I, I sadly said this uh, myself in my book to his best friend, whose name was Engin Jezar. Uh, it was in my first year. Engin Jezar was this really cool old theater actor in Turkey, and he had met James Baldwin in the actor's studio in New York in the 50s. They were doing a play with Elia Kazan. I mean, it's just the coolest history, and then when Baldwin came to Istanbul, he stayed with Jezar, and Jezar was still alive when I was there. And um, I, I, we were talking about Barack Obama, and we were talking about Baldwin, and I said something like, you know, um, you, you asked about America, James Baldwin and America. No, Istanbul, but go ahead. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, would well, be happy in Istanbul today? Oh, would he? Um, well, okay, I'll go back to the other one in a second. But, um, <laughs> Would he be happy in Istanbul today? Uh, God, I, I think, it's, look, the reasons why he was happy in Istanbul, I should explain, was that he was gay. And in America, he didn't feel as comfortable being affectionate. But in Istanbul, men are very affectionate with each other. It's just natural. I mean, you know, they, they link arms. They would hold pinkies um, in the street. This was a kind of Anatolian tradition. And they were just very affectionate with each other. And he found this very, very liberating. So I think that that was why. And so he would still find that. Yes, but I think that you have a, a very global city right now um, where you have all different types of people. Uh, the Istanbul that he was in was very... Turkish. Um, and so he was not seen as black. Black was, he was seen as something else. He was just seen as sort of like a foreigner in a way. Now you have um, Syrian immigrants, you have um, African immigrants from all different places, and Turks, I think, are a little bit more sensitive, and he might be witness to or hearing more racism than, than he would have heard um, back in the 60s when it was kind of, I mean, I think Istanbul was kind of a, a small a small town in a way. So I think it was, I think it was different. But, and I think that, um, no, I think that he probably wouldn't be happy with the direction it's going in, but I'm, I'm sure he'd have a lot of interesting reasons for why that had happened. Yeah. Uh, in your writings, particularly in your journalistic writings, not, not so much your book, but you, you're critical of Turkey in some, in some ways. And the question comes from the audience, several of them, about the limits you feel Maybe you can't describe this here, but to, to your own speech, your on particularly in political commentary on Turkey, uh, uh, journalists have been imprisoned in, in Turkey. Uh, do you feel a, a kind of pressure to write a certain way or speak a certain way, or do you, you feel free to speak your mind? I, I think, look, I think most foreign journalists feel this way, that historically Turkey has always, and they've been doing this for a very long time, it's not just Erdogan, they, you know, they persecute journalists, and they persecute their own. Um, and foreign journalists usually are able to do what they want and say what they want, and when you are seeing your Turkish journalist friends and Turkish journalists in general going through what they're going through, it's pretty weird to feel like you can't say something or you can't do something because you're not going to jail. If you do, I mean, anyone who has a kind of, any kind of Turkish citizenship is in danger. So that you've seen some German Turks who have been in jail. Um, there have been lawsuits brought against um, American Turks even. 
Um, those people don't, in her example, for example, she's not coming back to the country, but you don't normally see someone like me going to jail. It has happened here and there. Um, but in general, I feel like once you decide to not say what you mean or what you want to say, you just, you really might as well stop doing it. And I'm not saying that that's a bad decision because, you know, but you can let someone else do it, you know. But I think that as a foreign journalist, there is, um, there's no reason, it's not even, I don't want to even get dramatic about it that it's an obligation. I mean, there's no, there's no reason to not still be as honest as, as, as you want to be. Um, I think that what you'll find is that people will be careful in certain ways that might not be visible to you and do, does not harm the story. It might just be certain kinds of word choice that an editor in New York might not realize is just not necessary. Um, certain words for Erdogan, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think that that's, there's that kind of stuff. But generally, I don't feel um, very worried, no. Uh, speaking of what Americans don't know about history, in particular that part of the world, what happened to the Armenians 100 years ago uh, is, I gather, kept under wraps or interpreted a certain way in, in Turkey. Uh, is that a, uh, an issue that gets much play in Turkey today? You know what's so interesting about this is that, I don't know if you remember, but um, there was this period when it was sort of, you know, we call it the good times in Turkey uh, after the election of AKP in 2007. And this was again during this time when everyone was calling Turkey the Muslim model and, and all of that. And then there was the Arab Spring and people thought every, you know, oh, well, let's, maybe they can all be like Turkey. And, um, and I think that, uh, oh my God, I just lost the question. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, this is when the jet lag kicks in. Um, uh, and during that period, there was um, actually greater press freedom. There was a greater kind of, there was a greater kind of openness. It was a very brief time. This was also when a lot of tourists were coming to Istanbul. This is when um, I think, you know, there was a lot of, you know, new media opening up. I mean, it was just this time of excitement. And the Armenian issue and the Kurdish issue were discussed in a, in a new way. And there was this Kurdish opening also. There was this peace process between Erdogan and the Kurds. And I think that these were a lot of the liberal promises of, of AKP that we have all been very disappointed to see haven't, haven't been the same. The AKP being Erdogan's political yes, party. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. his political party. And now, no, you don't, you don't hear about it very much. It's not talked about very much. Um, and I, I doubt it will be for some time. Uh, I don't think so. But it's also not, it's just simply not one of the primary issues uh, on the table in Turkey. There's just so much other stuff going on, I think. We have time really for one more question, and it is around the, the notion of being hopeful. Uh, as an American observing your country from abroad, uh, are you hopeful for this country's future? And Maybe are you hopeful for Turkey's future? Um, uh, yeah, I I think. Um, <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite subjects, but um, I might not have the 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 energy for. It. But no, I think that with Turkey, first of all, I would just say don't count Turkey out. I mean, it's I think that people are very um, negative about it and and sort of they very pessimistic about it. But this is a this is a resilient place. Um, it's been around for a really long time, and uh, people, it, its people are very smart. If you saw that, that recently they challenged um, Erdogan in, in a referendum that was very, very important, um, and this was when there was no other opposition. There were no opposition voices. There was hardly any media that was conveying the other side, and yet, you know, Turks, I feel, are, there's a certain pragmatism where they say, okay, you know what, maybe we need to 
kick in some balance here in the political spectrum and, and maybe this has all gone on for too long, um, Erdogan's reign. And so I think that, I think that um, we don't know what will happen with Turkey yet. I just hope that these wars don't continue spilling over into Turkey. And then as for the US, to be honest with you, um, I am. I, I think that what is going on now, the conversations we're having, um, I think that they were a long time coming. I think they needed to happen. I think we needed to flush out some of this ugly stuff um, that has been there for a very long time, and we have someone who's willing to do that. Um, and, so, and, and I think that it, it does create this environment where, I mean, look, people, and I've heard this from foreigners too, people are sort of saying, you know, you're being more introspective. Good job, guys. You know, you're kind of, you're, you're criticizing yourselves in new ways. It's no longer this end of history, we are the best kind of thing. Um, maybe we're going to come up with a new idea of ourselves. I mean, it, that is the thing to be excited about. That is the thing to really, I think, prove our mettle. <laughs> um, you know, can we reimagine? Can we reimagine who we are um, once we get over um, mourning the old identity? And I, and I, I do... I do have some, I just think that the next period will be really hard uh, at, before we get there. But anyway, I hope Thank so. Thank you. Thank you, Susie.